Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Fighting in Sudan has continued to rage over recent weeks as violence broke out between the Sudanese army and a paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces. The two are engaged in a power struggle over who gets to run the resource-rich nation that sits at a crossroads between North Africa, the Sahel, the Horn of Africa and the Red Sea. But who are the Rapid Support Forces? Who are supporting them? And how does the current period of violence in Sudan link back to the country's history since its independence in 1950? 56. I'm your host James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and to help us find answers to these questions, I've invited Ambassador Susan Page onto the podcast. Susan was the first US ambassador to a newly independent South Sudan, and it's from her experience brokering agreements in the region that we learn just how important and how devastating the current conflict really is. Ambassador Page, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Well, I think it's an important time to have you on the podcast. All of our listeners will have seen that every major news outlet around the world is reporting that the conflict in Sudan continues to rage unabated despite attempts at peace agreements and ceasefires and yet the conflict is continuing at this moment in time. However, it's hard to understand what the drivers of this are given the fact that Sudan has been a country that has been embroiled in conflict since its independence back in the 1950s. And seeing as you were the US ambassador to South Sudan, I was wondering if you could take us back to perhaps what you think is the most pertinent starting point to help us understand what is going on in Sudan today. So Sudan has gone through a number of coups and crises and conflicts since it gained independence from the British-Egyptian condominium in 1956, on January 1st of 1956. So fast forward into the mid-80s and a change of power towards the late 80s, with Omar al-Bashir becoming president of the country. And he ruled until 2019 when he was overthrown in basically a revolution led by the population, by the people of Sudan through their various unions, the doctors' union, teachers' union, many of whom coalesced into one group. And the protests began in 2018 and just kept going basically the end of 2018. And by 2019, they formed a, when Bashir was ousted and arrested, put in jail, and then a military council came into effect. The population was not happy with that. That was not what they called for. They wanted the military completely out of politics in Sudan. So they continued their protests. And eventually, this military council gave way to a 
new, what was called a sovereignty council eventually, and that became an 11 member body of civilians and military who were meant to then rule the country for a period of about three years, a little less than two years, and then transition to a fully fledged transitional democracy led by a civilian government. That didn't happen. Many attempts to postpone those dates and eventually the military head, General Burhan, and his deputy, another military, sort of paramilitary leader, Hemeti, came to a decision that they would oust the civilian entity and they formed their own government by arresting the civilian prime minister, putting him under house arrest, and basically putting on a state of emergency, suspending the transitional constitutional agreement, and decided to start ruling for themselves, by themselves. So that's where we are right now. This coup occurred in 2021, October of 2021. There was a brief period of time where international negotiators pushed the parties to reconvene, and that didn't last for long. And eventually the prime minister stepped down again, resigned in frustration. And since that time, these two men have been ruling the country. And when the push to get them to merge their forces became too strong, they went to war with each other. And that's where we are. That began on April 15th, and it has been raging ever since with great devastation. So I'm going to ask a question that sounds incredibly simple, but I fear is rather complex. Who is currently in charge in Sudan? Well, it's somewhat unclear. I would say that both of these men would say that they are in charge with their troops. So you have the Rapid Support Forces under General Hameti, and that's a paramilitary organization. And then you have General Burhan, who was essentially the de facto head of state, but has always been a military leader. And he is in charge of the Sudan Armed Forces, so the formal military of Sudan. So there is the Sudanese military, and then there is the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF. And when it comes down to it, what is it that separates them? What are they fighting for? What are the differences between them? I think each one would say pretty much the same thing, that they are there to restore democracy and put the civilians in charge, that they are protecting the state and representing the interests of the people. Of course, that's not what most of the people say. And as we know from a lot of countries, oftentimes people think that the military is the best source of strength, support, and not necessarily democracy, but stability. 
Is there something to be said for that in the case of Sudan? You, you mentioned this history. We go back, back to the 1950s. And there does appear to be this case that when the civilian project fails, it's the military that comes in to try and bring some sort of level of stability. And of course, you had the 30-year rule of Omar al-Bashir. And this is something which I think we can say is tantamount to a dictatorship at this time. And then it comes through with this popular uprising. I didn't realise that it was a union-led uprising, a kind of democratic upshoot to come and to remove this dictator but it's a military that comes in again to bring some sort of stability is that what sudan needs now do they need to have the sudanese military in place to try and bring a period of stability and then try again for that democratic transition that's complicated because right now you actually do have the sudanese military that is de facto in part in charge and they're fighting the other wing of the military, whether we call it a wing or an outshoot, but this is the problem. Right, I see. So the rapid support forces were once a part of the military itself. So this isn't just a kind of uh, a split in the politics of Sudan, but it's a split in the military. Well, not exactly. So the RSF, the rapid support forces, actually were formed as kind of a branch that would be accompaniment to the formal and formally trained Sudan Armed Forces, which Burhan represents. Formal military education, but paramilitaries and militias, if you want to call them that, have had a long history in Sudan and the RSF was formed out of the Janjaweed, which was the right. fighting force in Darfur. But they are basically citizens who picked up arms to fight against people who were rebelling against the government in Darfur. And President Bashir allowed the Janjaweed and then Hemeti in particular to rise and take up a lot of power so that the military didn't have to be so bogged down in the war in Darfur. I see. But if my history serves me right, the Janjaweed in Darfur were known for committing some quite serious human rights violations and abuses. Is this something that we're seeing as they transition into the rapid support forces? Are we seeing those sort of human rights abuses being committed in Sudan today? Absolutely. And I don't think that either side has particularly clean hands. General Burhan, the head of the SAF, was the chief of armed forces at the staff level in Darfur at the same time, at an earlier stage, sort of 2005 2006, and the Janjaweed didn't transition to the RSF until about 2013. And so, again, both sides have been allowed to prosper and the military, in whatever shape and form it has been in, has almost always had a strong role to play in the business interests of Sudan as well as the politics. So it's not really a split in the formal armed forces, but it is certainly a split in, on the one hand, General Burhan of the SAF does not want the rapid support forces merging into his formal army, and the RSF 
under Hameti does not want to merge his forces with the SAF because then for both that would mean a lessening of power, but also there's rivalry. They come from different parts of the country. There's a lot of racism and it's not exactly as clear cut, but what the population wants, the civilians who were protesting and who did need the military to do the formal ousting of Bashir, they never wanted a coalition government led by the military. And that's where we are now. But Sudan sits at this junction of interests between the Arab region or the Middle East as well as the West, Russia, there are a lot of players involved and not all of whom have the same interests. Well, you transition us nicely here to talk about the role of the international community in this conflict. Of course, we have seen that so many embassies have evacuated incredibly rapidly their diplomatic staff in the country. But in terms of taking sides... Can you give us some sort of understanding of of how the great powers position themselves on either sides of this growing... It's almost a war between sparring coups within the country. It doesn't seem like the, the, the civil side of the country, the, those pushing for democracy, get much say in this at all. So it's hard to call it a civil war. But in terms of the two sides that we've discussed, the Sudanese military and the rapid support forces, how does the international community divide themselves? So this is where it gets somewhat complicated, interesting in a bad way. So just in terms of the size of the country, Sudan is enormous. And even with the secession of the South, it's still the third largest country in Africa. But its position is also very important. So you have interests by Egypt, its neighbor part of its former colonial ruler, along with the Anglo-Egyptian condominium, so the English or the UK. And so Egypt has always seen Sudan as being in their backyard, which it literally is. But Egypt needs Sudan to buffer against what Ethiopia has been doing with the Grand Renaissance Dam, which jeopardizes the Nile water for both Egypt and Sudan. So for Egypt, that means having a strong military force like a Burhan or like a formal army, that is good for Egypt because they don't want the Grand Renaissance Dam to completely upend their resources of the Nile because they really need the Nile water. And so they're going to hedge on that side. On the other hand, you also have Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And they have also used both the military as well as the rapid support forces of Hameti to fight against the Houthis in Yemen and or to bolster support for a general in Libya. So those elements, and then you have Russia. 
I was going to say this because when you start mentioning Libya and certain generals, General Hafter, then we start to think about the Emirati alliance, but also the role of Russia in that particular conflict. And so I have seen reports that the Wagner Group, the now infamous Wagner Group, have been supporting the rapid support forces. Is this the case? Yes. And there seems to be plenty of proof, notwithstanding the Wagner Group's denials, but it is apparently well-known on the ground as well as in lots of other circles and some satellite imagery that is on Global Witness and other websites that have nothing to do with intelligence sources. So yes, the gold mines have been, Hemeti owns in quotes, a lot of these gold mines and has a partnership or some sort of a relationship with the Wagner Group. And those exports are going to Russian coffers, but also allegedly through Emirati banks as well. So there is support on that side. But there's also an agreement that was reached in principle, but has not been formally approved but it was announced, I think back in 2020, that Russia, as in the government of Russia, had done a deal, was waiting for the formal approval, to open a military base in Sudan along the Red Sea. So that can't happen without both the military, formal military powers, as well as government officials, and others who are in charge of at least negotiating those deals, even if it hasn't formally been approved to date. From biblical fame to its fabled great walls, Babylon was home to kings, conquerors, and wonders of the ancient world. But what do we actually know about this legendary city? And how much is still shrouded in mystery? Join me, Tristan Hughes, every Sunday throughout May on the Ancients as we delve into the story of Babylon. We'll be covering topics varying from the King Nebuchadnezzar II and how he forged a massive Babylonian empire. We'll be exploring the mystery of the hanging gardens of Babylon, looking at world-renowned objects such as the Cyrus Cylinder, and also looking at Babylon in the aftermath of one of the most well-known conquerors in the whole of history, Babylon after Alexander the Great. That's all to come this May on The Ancients every Sunday. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. 
Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Wow, so there's so many dynamics driving this conflict. We can see that there is a resource wars element over the resources of the Nile itself and the broader conflicts that stem from that. And I'm sure something that will worryingly increase on the African continent as we see climate change having a, playing a decisive factor in reducing access to water sources and reliable sources of food as well. So there's one dynamic there. But then there's this proxy element because we've seen this within Libya where we have, of course, the government of national accord on one side, the UN-recognised government, and then you have the Libyan National Army, led by General Hafter on the other side, and then you have the great powers on either side of that, trying to support the group that... I think maybe the easiest way to say it is that most of the players are not choosing sides, in a sense. So while Egypt clearly could contribute, and there were... Egyptian troops that were captured, actually, and then returned, but they were training alongside the Sudan Armed Forces. But you have neighboring Chad, which borders Darfur, and that's the home of Hemedti. And he has family on the Chadian side as well. And you have these other groups militia groups, military groups, rebel groups, they have lots of different names depending on where you're sitting, who have also been fighting and at times aligned with the government in Khartoum. So some of them lined up behind the two generals when they conducted the coup back in 2021, and some of them did not. So they are at play as well. And the Russians are also heavily involved in areas of Africa where the French have pulled out and the Wagner group has stepped in. So it's a proxy war on top of also countries in the region and further away wanting stability. And how do you get the greatest stability in some cases, that might mean, all right, we will back the formal military. In other cases, but we need these men that the RSF has ready access to, to fight some of our other wars, as in supporting General Haftar or supporting the fight against the Houthis in Yemen, because that's Iran. So a lot of players involved. And then you have the U.S., the U.K., the European Union, the African Union. And, of course, all of these are member states of these different bodies. And member states, even if they are part of a greater union, have their own interests, too. 
It's a complex situation, Ambassador Page. Wars are always complex situations in politically and, of course, in terms of the strategies themselves and the dynamics at play. But the dynamics here seem to be in part to do with resource wars around the, the water supply of the Nile, a dynamic that drives and will increasingly drive conflicts around the world, but also on the African continent as climate change has its impact there. But then there's Russian meddling and also these regional proxy wars by by smaller and medium powers in Yemen and Libya. And it seems to me that you can see all of this playing out in Sudan itself. Do you think that Sudan epitomizes these broader dynamics going on in the region? And I think maybe just to say, I think also the fear is that Sudan, if it continues, and so this would be in some ways the interests of Egypt and Saudi Arabia even you know the UAE of wanting this stability while it's a bloody horrible war right now that is raging in Sudan not just in Khartoum but in lots of other places now but they don't want it to become a Yemen they don't want it to become a Libya and that is a very real fear and so if you look at who leads Riyadh who leads some of these neighboring countries they are not necessarily democracies. <laughs> and so that's at odds with what the population wants. But for global interests, unfortunately, as we're seeing right now, that population who started this through their protests, through their organizations, they are the ones being left out. Well, you mentioned the impacts on the civilian population and the humanitarian situation that is going on. How badly is this affecting the civilians in Sudan at the moment? How bad has it got? It's awful. It is just awful. If you follow the regular feed of whatever media you look at, all of the missed opportunities by many different countries, the meddling... But the bombing, the strafing, the rocket fire, the home invasions, the rapes, the pillaging, the destruction of hospitals, people are being killed, people can't get out, they can't get food and water. When they try to venture out because it seems like there's a little bit of a lull, then they have to either rush quickly and hope that nothing happens for that brief time period that they go out to try to just get water and a few food supplies, but there's no money in the banks and the food, whatever is available is expensive. What I would say is the Sudanese have been incredible. They have, through the resistance committees that they had set up originally back during the protest times, but continually acting for and pushing for their desires, and especially women's organizations, they have managed to get supplies to people, to individuals who are suffering. They have WhatsApp phone numbers available to people in country, emails available in partnership with, you know, global partners, women's alliances, and others where the international bodies have had a really hard time getting supplies in. Local Sudanese are taking incredible risks 
to try to get people to safety. They're telling about the routes that they have taken out or routes, what you need to do, what you need to avoid, where you need visas to get across. I mean, this is, you know, this is a war. People don't have time to apply for visas and countries, Chad has closed the border, although people are managing to get in. The Red Sea is an area where we've got the port, so a lot of evacuations have taken place there. But even for the people who have resources to get out, the prices are doubling daily to get a bus, to get transportation, to get to any of these locations. And meanwhile, they are risking life and limb just trying to get out. People are making excruciating choices. Do I take my immediate family, but leave my elderly parents or grandparents, but I want to stay. This is my country. This is my home. People are being killed. You know, the numbers being reported are clearly underreported, but it is just disastrous, really disastrous. Ambassador Page, as somebody who has most literally helped to devise peace agreements in this region. What steps need to be taken next to restore peace in the country? Is the international community doing enough? Is the West doing enough? We see billions being invested into Ukraine, and of course, rightly so. But does more need to be done in Sudan? I absolutely think so. It's just a real shame that where I think the West really could have supported pro-democracy interests at the time, Lots of missteps, or perhaps others would call it real politique, but nonetheless, we can't erase what happened in the past, but what could happen is they have to really regain the trust of the people of Sudan. We can't just talk about democracy and it only applies in the West and in Europe or in places that are more like whatever it is that we think about. The Middle East people or North African, I mean, the Arab Spring, this could have really been a moment. So I think one area that at least the West could do more of, clearly there has to be some sort of a ceasefire. I mean, they have to stop fighting. But when it's time for real talks, and negotiations about what Sudan is going to be, the population really has to be consulted. It doesn't mean that everyone is always alike and has the exact same ideas. It's messy. Democracy is messy. And it's not perfect. And it doesn't only mean elections. It's all of the infrastructure that goes with elections, governance, good governance, anti-corruption, and those are the kinds of things that free and fair media, releasing all of these political prisoners, turning over Bashir to the ICC, which the original transitional government said it would do. But now you have a lot of former pro-Bashir people back in, I mean, okay, right now it's unclear what's exactly happening, but they have been put in positions or re-put <laughs> in positions. Absolutely. Um, so it took us a long time to put an ambassador in after sanctions were removed and after Sudan was removed from the terrorist list. We need people with deep experience in Sudan and in the region 
really working with the people, getting to know all of the actors, the political actors, even the opposition, the civilian actors, the unions, the women's groups. They need to be consulted and really involved. Well, it sounds like we know the stepping stones for peace here and its investment in civil society and the people themselves who have been striving for democracy, striving for their own civilian government for decades now. And hopefully there can be a ripe time in this conflict to allow that to take place. Ambassador Page, thank you so much for taking the time today to shine light on this conflict and to remind us that there are also important international dynamics that we need to keep in mind when we look at any conflict that is erupting across North Africa or indeed the African continent. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 on Instagram at James Rogers History and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.